0: Amen. You may be seated. If you've got your Bible with you today, would you turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, or the text is printed on page 9 in your bulletin. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 are famously called the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read just the first 16 verses here. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify sorry give glory to your father who is in heaven this is the word of the lord be to God. and father we ask you to move powerfully in our hearts and our lives through this word in Jesus good name amen Well, I suppose it's been obvious since I uh, preached my New Year's sermon this year that in 2021, one of my goals in preaching to you guys this year is to help us all to think a lot more like Jesus about heaven. I'm trying to pry us loose from this idea, which is just so deep in our Christian consciousness, I think, that heaven is this kind of far-off post-death destination. I want you guys, hopefully, as I open up the scriptures to you, to start thinking of heaven less as something kind of out there and after this, and start thinking about heaven as an invisible presence, a realm of spiritual reality that is actually with us right here in the pews, whether we acknowledge it or not. See, that's how Jesus understood heaven. Let me read you a few words from Dallas Willard on how Jesus thought about heaven. Well, it says, from, from Abraham onward, heaven signified to the people of Israel the direct availability of God to his children, the direct availability of God to his children, as well as his supremacy over all that affects us. Let me just say that another way. So for Jesus, and for Israel up to Jesus, heaven meant that you're always walking around under, under, under heaven. It's right there. You don't have to, like, go off someplace to find God. God is here, directly available to us, and he's, he's over us, like the skies are over us. He is over us, and that he is supreme over all that affects us. That's how Jesus thought about heaven. Jesus was concerned to pass on to his followers this reality of heaven's rule that undergirded his life. When he sent his 12 friends out on their first mission, he told them it was like sending sheep in the midst of wolves. Nevertheless, imagine sheep being told this. There was no need for them to fear. Two sparrows cost a penny, yet not one falls upon the earth without your Father's will. Heaven is so close that even the hairs on your heads are numbered. So don't be afraid, Jesus tells us. You are of more value than many sparrows. That's what it means to live in the presence of the Heavenly Father, to live in the presence of heaven. Gerard Manley Hopkins famously said, The world is charged with the grandeur of God. Earth is charged with heaven. Or as I've been trying to express it, the world is filled with, it is resonant with, it, is, it reverberates with the music of God's presence and God's purposes. If you could hear the song of reality right now, it would be singing the presence and the purposes of God. More surely than you're here today, God is here. More surely than you have plans for this day, God has purposes for this day and for the future. That's the idea. That's the music of reality. And that is what is meant by this mountain. You know, there are all these funny little details in the Bible, and they mean something. Mountains are all over the Bible. Peter Lighthart very helpfully says, mountains are where heaven and earth meet. They're kind of this physical place where heaven touches earth. That's why God came up on Mount Sinai. And what Jesus is doing when he goes up on a mountain and sits down is he, as the Lord, the King from heaven, is on the earth bringing kind of a manifesto of what heaven on earth is supposed to look like. That's really what the Sermon on the Mountain is. Because as we've been learning, God wants the whole earth to live in friendship with him. He wants all of the earth to live in friendship with heaven. He wants every place in this cosmos to be just filled with the glorious symphonic music of his presence and purposes. And that's why I'm preaching this short little series on worship. Because what I'm trying to help you guys understand, and and it's been working in my heart too, is that when we gather like this to worship, what we are doing is we are rehearsing the music of that reality. We are re- it, worship is, is, get, is getting together and having a kind of mountaintop encounter with God's presence and his purposes. We get in here and all of a sudden, in a more intensified way, you remember, yes, God is real and he is here and he has plans and he's gonna work out those plans and it kind of settles you down and it fills you with you know, some soul to go out and live for him. That, worship is a rehearsal, But why do we rehearse? Because God wants you to go out and live every day in that heavenly reality. And we rehearse together, playing that music every day. And that's why worship ends not with an altar call. There, I said it. Not with an altar call, but with a commission we had the big five C's, right? We've been working through the big five C's of worship. God calls us, he cleanses us, he consecrates us, then he communes with us, then he commissions us. That's how worship ends. You're sent out, you can see it in the bulletin every week, that's the rehearsal, that's life. And today I want to talk about our commission that Jesus gives you. And I actually want to start at the end of the text, in verses 13 through 16, where Jesus shows us what our commission is. Now let me say something about a commission please let's grab hold of this simple idea together. In, if you read the Bible carefully, you will see that in the kingdom of heaven, I prefer the phrase the kingdom from heaven, because we have this weird thing about heaven, it's kind of like not, it's just out there. No, heaven, the kingdom from heaven, and if you look at what Jesus says about the kingdom from heaven, as it's now in the world, and it's, you know, it's, it's filling the world, what you'll begin to see is that everyone God calls is sent. Everybody God calls is sent. I really want to think about that for a minute. If you have been called by Jesus, you have been sent by him. We've, we heard this in our very opening uh, message from Peter, where he said, God has called you out of darkness to do what? Why did he call you out of darkness? To sit and study theology. No. That, you do that, yes. To sit and sing, you know, sometimes lame, sometimes interesting hymns. No. To sit and you know sing kumbaya together with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Actually, that's not that's not what Peter says. All those things are fine, you know, snuggling as Christians, studying theology, this is all good stuff. But what does Peter say Jesus called you out of darkness for? Somebody testify here. To proclaim what? The excellencies of God. That's really what it's for. Yes, you come in here and you're resourced and equipped and you enjoy this and you're with people like you and it's comforting and it's, you know, stabilizing and energizing, but you're called to proclaim. You're called to go out there and, and, and make known. You know, Jesus said, follow me, follow me, and I'll take you to seminary. No, he said, follow me, and I'll what? I'll make you what? Fishers, man. Get a pole. You know, I find a lot of Christians seem not to have absorbed this as personal reality at all. A lot of Christians don't live like everyone calls Jesus Everyone Jesus calls, he sends. Missionaries are other people. Ambassadors for the kingdom are other people. That's what we pay Ben Miller to do. It's hard to kind of absorb the fact you are a missionary. You are sent by Jesus because that's what he does when he calls people. And what you can observe as you look at Christians is that individually and as churches... Christians spiritually grow and they spiritually thrive basically to the degree they're dialed into that fact that you're sent. If you don't see yourself as sent, your spiritual life, your Christian life is going to have some weaknesses in it. The more you understand when Jesus called me and saved me and I'm so glad and I'm his and I love it and I love being being a part of his people and all that, that's glorious. If you don't understand, that also means I am sent every moment of my life into this world, there's going to be a kind of spiritual weakness that comes. And so Jesus, he sends us here, he reminds us we're sent, And he sends us. You'll notice two things: to be on mission and to live on mission. I I say be on mission because it's interesting. He he begins by saying simply, "You are. You are not. You must." He does not say you must be the light. You must be the salt of the earth. You must be the light of the world. He doesn't say that. He, he, He talks first not about living on mission, but just simply being on mission. You are. You not. You must aspire to this. You must achieve this. You already are this. What? You're sent into the world as God's salt and God's light. Now, why does he say salt and light? Well, salt, you know, these were Jews who were listening to this sermon. And when they heard salt, they would have thought of something in the book of Leviticus. That's where, you know, most of us North American Christians kind of lose momentum in our Bible reading each year. But, you know, as you get into the details of the sacrifices, in the opening two chapters of Leviticus, there were the, the, the first offering that God wanted to be offered was the, what we called the, the burnt offering. You Remember that a couple of weeks ago? The burnt offering was an entire animal that was chopped up, washed, put on the altar, and consumed into God's glory cloud. It's a picture of an entire life given to God. And with the burnt offering, there was a grain offering where you'd bring some, some grain and you would put that with the burnt offering as a reminder that God, I'm not, it's not just all of me that is given over to you. All that I do, all my work, all the stuff I'm about in the world, is, I'm offering that to you as well. And in Leviticus 2.13, God says, you shall not allow the salt of God's covenant to be missing in that offering. Because what's going on there is this whole life being offered to God and all the grain of it, you know, all the fruit and produce of my life is offered to you, and the salt was this savory reminder that this is a life in covenant with God, in friendship with God. That's the salt of God's covenant. It's a savor of a life that is in friendship with God. And it's interesting if you think about this salted whole life offering, it's a very potent influence in the world, very potent influence. You hear little phrases that might make more sense after you think about this, like when Paul says in Colossians 4, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. What's even, well, this is what he's talking about so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. When you're walking around and you're tight with God and you are living in covenant with God, that makes you in your words and your actions an influence. That friendship with God just kind of seeps out of you and it it savors your conversations and it savors the way you live. That's being salt. We sprinkle earth with the salt of heaven. We're friends of God, we're apprentices of God, walking around in God's world, his workshop, and our lives are full of his righteousness and his wisdom and his grace, and that's salt. And light, you are not just, you are that, beloved. You don't have to work to be that, you are that. And you're light. Light is another word picture. Light is sunrise. Light breaks the gloom. Light is that thing that resurrects you from that sleepy death every morning. Just a chapter earlier, we're told that when Jesus came into the world, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. We are the refreshing light of God. We're the dew, the rains from heaven, springs in the desert. We bring that healing and cleansing and hope and joy from God where it's otherwise just a salt waste and a dark, gloomy, shadowy region. And you'll notice that Jesus moves on from being what you are, being on mission, to to then he sends us to live on mission, because what does he say in verse 16? You are the salt, you are the light, so what? What's verse 16 say? Let it shine, man. Light shines. Light just shines. And Jesus is saying, look, now just go live as God's friends. Live as God's apprentices wherever you are. Go shine, man. Go savor. Bring your worship into the world. That's the commission. Live every day as the people that you are, called by the Father, cleansed by the Son, consecrated by the Holy Spirit, communing with God, hopefully learning how to commune with each other. That's who we are. Just go shine that. Take the riches of God's kingdom that he has given to you. Man, there's so many when you're God's friends and children and apprentices. What has he given us? Given us grace? Well, we've got grace to give Given us truth, we've got truth to give. Given us wisdom, then there's wisdom to contribute in this world. Given us love, go do good with the wealth of the kingdom. The last conversation I had with Jim less I think it was 48 hours before he died, I asked him a question as I was there by his bedside. I said, Jim, what would you say to my 16 year old son from where you're sta- lying now? What would you say? And he struggled. I thought he was falling asleep. He struggled because he was dying. And he finally, just very simply said, be good and do good. Be good and do good. I thought, yeah, that, that pretty much covers it. Be the salt and light and go do good with what God has given you, whatever it is. It's just a question every day in the heart and mind of one who's salt and light. What can I say right now? What can I do right now to show the Father in heaven what he's like? Show his generosity here, maybe. Show his mercy here, maybe. Show how he loves his enemies here. Show how I'm interested in doing good with no self-interest. Not trumpeting, you know, not letting people know that I'm giving alms, not letting people know I'm, you know, in prayer. Just go pray. Just cry out for somebody in prayer or go give alms to those who are in need. And The whole sermon's about this, right? Go find a way, what does it look like? Ask yourself, what, what can I do right now to bring the healing of the heavenly kingdom, to bring the hope and the joy that you know, the, the world doesn't have it without us, beloved? And, and sit down and be specific. Can I encourage you guys, please, please, and I know it's so hard sometimes, but don't just sit and listen to this stuff and you know, kind of nod and you know, it's interesting and then just move on. Take some time to run some inventory with this, to ask yourself, what has God placed before me as my particular opportunities to live who I am, to, to, to shine the light, to, to sprinkle the salt. And I love what one commentator says. He says, there is no alternative source of flavor or light. Beloved, can, I, can, I, can, we just, can we hear that together from our hearts? There is no alternative source of flavor or light. If the disciples of Jesus are unsalty, the world is without its flavor. If the disciples of Jesus put a bushel over their lampstand, the world's in darkness. (laughs) It is objectively the case that we are the salt and light of the world. The world cannot realize its purposes without us. It will not join in cosmic worship glorifying the Father in heaven unless the church does good works that are evident to men. Like, we're it. You are the salt and the light. That's our commission. Shine the light. Sprinkle the salt. Be the friends, apprentices, children of God that you are in the world. Now I want to turn, though, back to the first part of the text. I want to talk, having talked about the commission, I I want to talk now about our condition on the mission. (laughs) So there's the commission in verses 13 through 16. Now let's just talk for a minute about our condition on the mission. And God kind of rocked me with this this week, and I'm kind of hoping he will rock some of you. I think we could use some rocking with this. Our condition on the mission. What is the state, what's the condition of these people who are salt and light? What is it about them that actually qualifies them to have that kind of influence? How does Jesus describe these people? Because see, if you're a serious Christian, you want to have influence. I mean, you can't really be a serious follower of Jesus and be like, you know, I kind of hope I don't have any influence in the world. I just kind of hope I can like, stay in my little Jesus bubble and kind of just wait it out until he sends the lifeboats and I can get floating off in the rapture or whatever it is you imagine. You want to have influence. You want your life to make a difference. You want to leave a mark, not because you're full of yourself, because you're full of Jesus. And you want him to shine out of you and you want to savor. There's, it's good to want to have influence, but I will tell you, I am really beginning to believe that a lot of Christians do not understand how the influence of this particular kingdom works. This kingdom from heaven influences, it will change the world. Indeed, one day it will fill the world, it will revolutionize the world, it will glorify the world. But I think sometimes we are a little confused about how the influence of this kingdom works. And because I think we're confused, I meet a lot of Christians who are frustrated and discouraged and even angry about stuff that's going on in the world and feel very helpless in the face of it, because I don't think we understand how this this kingdom brings its influence. So if I were to ask you guys, if we were to sit down with, over coffee in a minute, I were to say to you, brother, sister, what is it that turns the wheels of the world? I mean, you know, you, giving what you can see from where you're standing, and I'll look to What do we see out there that turns the wheels of the world? What changes the world? Well, we'd talk about stuff like social status. We'd talk about stuff like economic strength. We'd talk about political strategies and successes. See, here's what I think a lot of Christians actually believe. Grace saves souls. Wealth, status, and power change the world. That's what I think we believe. Grace is fine for saving souls. But if you're going to change the world, you need wealth, status, and power. Christians think this way. And so that's what we want. We want a king and a kingdom like the nations. Thank you very much. Give me that Jesus. I mean, the Jesus in church, you know, the grace Jesus, he's fine for saving people from hell. But if you're really going to go out there and change the world, we need a Jesus and a kingdom and a bunch of Christians with a lot of wealth, status, and power. I think we actually believe that. A lot of us. And that's why verse 3 is just shocking. Verse 3 just sat me on my spiritual backside this week so hard. Blessed are the bankrupt. Theirs is the kingdom from heaven. Jesus says what qualifies you, my dear brother, my dear sister, to be an ambassador for his kingdom, to be an influencer for his kingdom, what qualifies you to go out and be an influencer for Jesus in this world and to bring that salty salt and brilliant light that will change the world, what qualifies you to have that kind of influence is one simple thing, and that is that you entered this kingdom as a zero. You walk through the door of this kingdom naked, being nothing and having nothing whatsoever to commend you to God or anyone else. That is what qualifies you for this kingdom, being a zero. You can offer the wealth of God's kingdom because you walked in the door as a bankrupt. And in fact, you're not fit to represent the kingdom. You cannot be salt and you cannot be light until you know That at the core of this kingdom is, in Dallas Willard's words, this just blew my mind. At the core of Jesus' kingdom, unlike the kingdoms of the nations, at the core of Jesus' kingdom, listen, is the complete obliteration, the complete obliteration of social and cultural distinctions as a basis for life under God. At the core of Jesus' kingdom is the complete obliteration of social and cultural distinctions as a basis for life under God. When you come into this kingdom, it doesn't matter how much wealth you have or how much poverty you're experiencing. It doesn't matter how much high or low status you experience. It doesn't matter whether you are powerful, all, yay, or in worldly terms, almost all powerful, or whether you are an, you are a helpless worm. It, makes, it doesn't matter whether you're you know on the far right or the far left. When you walk in the door of this kingdom, you've got nothing. Before God, none of that stuff gives you a basis. Not one person, whether you're male, female, slave, master, it makes no difference. In this kingdom, we're all zeros. We're just all leveled out as we walk in. You got degrees, you've never even got through high school. It makes no difference. IQ, you, I mean, it doesn't, you know, friends, lonely, whatever. You walk in here, absolute poverty. And when you understand that, Here's how it it frees you to go change the world. When you really get that in the core, I come in, everybody comes into this kingdom, and before God, we have exactly one basis for life with him, and that is Jesus. All the social and cultural distinctives, they are pushed aside in this kingdom. You get that at the core of who you are. Then you're ready. Please listen to this. Then you are ready, and not before, to go offer God's heavenly welcome to zeros. Then you're ready to go welcome zeros as a fellow zero. Until then, you know what you are? You're just one of the scribes and Pharisees. Your righteousness is the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees. What distinguishes real Christians from religious Pharisees and irreligious Pharisees? And there are religious Pharisees and there are irreligious Pharisees. What distinguishes real Christians from Pharisees is they really know who they are in God's eyes. I bring nothing to God. I've received everything from God. Then you're no longer a scribe or a Pharisee. Here's how that changes you and here's how it enables you to be an influencer. If you really understand that, two things. Number one, you can look at everybody with hope and love. If you know you're a zero and Jesus gave you the kingdom, yours is the kingdom from heaven, and you, had, you, didn't, bring a, you didn't bring half a cent with you to, to offer to God. It is pure, free, full, all of God grace. When you get that, you can look at everybody you meet with hope and love. I mean, you can look at scoundrels, you can, look, I mean, you just look around. You, 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 you look at people and you see sin. You see injustice. You see wickedness. You can call it what it is. You can see who the enemies of, you know, people who are living in enmity against God, who are hostile to God. You take no joy whatsoever in this, but you look at them and you're like, you know what? I know this. There but for grace, for real, Ben Miller's out there doing the same. So I'm going to look at that person with hope and love. I think one of the wickedest features of our cultural moment, dear saints, across the ideological spectrum right now, one of the wickedest features of our cultural moment is the sheer self-righteousness of our culture. The righteousness of scribes and Pharisees despises. Our culture from far left to far right is just full of this self-righteousness. You know how we can tell? Because of the contempt Let me tell you something. The righteousness of this kingdom will crucify your contempt. It'll crucify your pride. It'll crucify all your qualifications except one, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in that way, it will make you fit to follow Jesus in seeking and saving sinners, the lost, to befriend tax collectors and prostitutes and to be a friend of sinners. Yea, to love your enemies as your Father in heaven pours out his reign and his, gives his Son to the just and the unjust. Man, it'll just, it'll, that'll change you. That's world-changing. I mean, just please stop looking for that on the ideological spectrum. That is in the kingdom of Christ alone. That's a Jesus thing. Blessed are the poor, the bankrupt in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom from heaven. That's one thing it does. It enables you to look at everyone with hope and love. And, and the other way it'll change you and help you change the world. It'll liberate us as God's people from social, cultural, and political captivity. It is rampant in the church right now. Because you know what? When you really get a hold of the fact that it is people who've got nothing to whom Jesus gives the kingdom, it helps you realize, all of a sudden, I'm just not intimidated by people who have everything. I really, truly, at a deep level, don't care that much anymore about the social, cultural, and political stuff that seems so dominant. That's not what I'm chasing. That is not what is going to change and rule the world. It just isn't. In fact, in the worst persecution, because Jesus ends this section in verse 10, blessed are the bankrupt, blessed are the persecuted. You come in naked, and as you're going along in this kingdom, if you're a bankrupt who came in and Jesus gave you the whole kingdom from heaven, like you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna be judging angels and you know rule in the new heavens and new earth with Jesus himself, and you know you've been given all authority with him in heaven and earth. And this God gave this to you with when you had nothing. If you're walking around like that, you're out there and you're like, you know, if they start feeding us the lions, that's okay. If we end up being under the jackboot of some you know monster regime that hates God, we're at peace. <laughs> You know, the whole, like, Phoenix Alliance the lions thing? You know why that doesn't work? Because um, our Lord raises the dead. So, you know, we're at peace. We're just at peace. I'm not going to get on some bandwagon of an ideology, a social agenda, a cultural movement, or a political regime. I am not servant to any of that, however much I might, you know, want to speak, you know, truth to halls of justice and power. Blessed are the persecuted. And Christians who are liberated like this, they're just not going to play the war games of social dominance. They're not interested. (laughs) They're free not to be interested. We're freed by the truth that the meritorious and mighty will not inherit the earth. The meritorious and mighty will not inherit the earth. The meek, the gentle, the Jesus people, the losers, the zeros, the bankrupts. They're going to inherit the earth, Jesus says here in verse 5. Because the earth is the Lord, the earth is the Lord's, and he gives it to zeros who hope in his mercy. That's the plan. That's the future. The earth is the Lord's. He's going to give it to zeros who hope in his mercy and nobody else. The kingdom is a gift, so we're just freed to give and give and give, not grasp, not chase bandwagons, thinking we're going to somehow rise back to dominance. We can go do what Jesus calls us to do. Cultivate virtue. Do good, enact wisdom, seek peace. Speak prophetic truth in love. And because they persecuted the prophets who were before you, endure opposition with joy. And you just keep doing that and that'll change the world. You're the salt, you're the light. That's the program. Be at peace in it. The commission begins with God's call. The call is this, very simple. You don't get the call, you won't understand the commission. The commission. The call is this, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. I have everything, and I'll freely give all of it to you. That's the call of the gospel. You have nothing, I have everything, I'll give all of it to you freely. Come to me. That's the call. And you come. Naked, bankrupt, a zero, and God gives you everything. And when you have received that call, now you're ready to go. Now you're salt and light. Now you can go stop playing the war games of the world and change the world in the power of Jesus Christ. That's what worship's supposed to do. I'm gonna close with some words from a Lutheran writer, Frank Sen, who, man, he just, I could have not preached this series if I'd just read this paragraph to you guys, so I'm gonna read this paragraph to you guys and conclude the series. Listen to what he says about worship. He says, for most of us, liturgy, he says, I'll I'll say worship. For most of us, worship has become a narrow place. Hemmed in by the monstrous structures of secular sacredness on the one side and bourgeois profanity on the other. A place that attracts few and generates obsessive neuroses even among them. That's worship, right? The faithful do not usually cavort, a word we don't hear often. They don't Revel and party in the liberating normality of life experienced in restored communion with God. That should be the mood of worship, not this cramped little place as the you know the the looming structures of our age. No, we should be cavorting in the liberating normality of life experienced in restored communion with God. Because they, why don't we cavort? Sen says because they have too much internalized the world's point of view. (laughs) That's why we don't cavort. And they lack the conviction to argue the world is simply wrong. If you feel intimidated and like this is a cramped little thing we're doing in here and all the power and interesting stuff that's going on in the world is out there, you just don't have the conviction to argue the world's just got it wrong. Worship shows you that. The corrective to this, says Sen, is not to amend or discard the historic worship of the church, But to regain confidence that the worship itself makes an adequate witness to the world of the world done right. See, what we're witnessing in here every week, beloved, is we're witnessing to the world what it looks like for the world to be done right. Called, cleansed, consecrated, communing, commissioned. That's life done right. We're just reenacting that and rehearsing that together every single week. That's what the world needs to see. Now, he says, and this is a good Reminder, which is why we did this series. This means that the world must actually be done differently in our assemblies. That a liberating word must be spoken. I am worried about how many churches I hear about now that are not actually preaching the word anymore. They're just putting on sort of entertainment spectacles for people. You've got to do the world differently in your assemblies if it's going to show the world the world done right. A liberating word must be spoken. Reconciliation must be demonstrated. Communion with God must be cherished. And compassion for the needy must be exercised and expressed. That's the world done right. Such, and then notice how he closes. Such a form of social life stands the strongest chance of exorcising the world's demons and healing the world's malaise. I say that this is the mission of the kingdom of God and that it begins, continues, and ends in the church's liturgical celebration. Amen. Bless these things, Lord God, to our worship and our daily life. In Jesus we pray. Amen.